So up to this point, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a disclaimer. Up to this point in our study of Matthew, we've gone through like four chapters in like two months. Looking ahead this last week, and I'm pretty sure that the next chapter will take two months. So we're going to slow it down a little bit. We're going to kind of pump the brakes a little bit and take some time because, because we're, we're kind of moving out of this period of narrative where we've just kind of seen, here's kind of how Jesus' ministry began. Here's all these things that happened and all. And now we're going to get to the point where, and we're going to read in just a minute, Jesus is going to sit down and he's going to take a long time and, and he's going to start teaching lots of truth about himself and a lot about the kingdom of heaven. All, what, what are all these things that, that he's been saying? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, you know, that phrase, what does that mean? What does that look like? What is the kingdom of heaven? And we're going to start getting a clearer picture of that because he's going to slow down and he's going to start teaching um, about that. So, so we're going to start kind of slowing down the pace a little bit. So um, let's start with this question. When have you felt the least adequate, the least capable, the, the most helpless, the most the most broken? When have you felt the weakest? And if your answer is not that one time that you had that stomach bug, let me remind you that that one time you had that stomach bug was when you were at your lowest. Right? There is, because we went through this a couple weeks ago, and there is no more helpless a feeling than when the best thing to you sounds like grabbing grabbing your bath towel and curling up in the middle of the bathroom floor and trying to fall asleep, just lying there in the middle of the bathroom, right? Is that just me? Is that not an awful picture? Is that not a miserable picture? But is that not sometimes how you feel? You get to this point, you're like, death even sounds nice, right? Like, like this is just, this is awful, terrible I don't want to speak. I don't want to be spoken to. Who's going to take care of my child? Right? And, and thank, thank God for grandparents. Right? Because they brought us Gatorade, and they took our kid to a basketball game. And I have no idea how she would have survived another eight to ten hours if we had to be the ones caring for, like, like we're just, I, it's miserable. Some of you are laughing because you haven't had a stomach bug in a while. You're vomit-free since 93. Some of you will get that reference, right? Some of you, some of you don't remember. Well, let me tell you, it's a miserable feeling. It's a helpless feeling. There's, there's like, there's nothing you can do. I am completely out of control. I am miserable. And yet, there are people sometimes in your life who will come into that terrifying environment and they will do things to serve you. In this instance, it was my parents and we're super, super grateful for that. But like, I'm sure they were like, I don't really want to walk through that door. If I walk through that door, I might end up with that same thing. If I take their kid and she sits in my lap for two hours at a basketball game, who knows what's going to happen? Dodge the bullet, right? Dodge the bullet. But... But it doesn't make sense to be like, oh, they're, they're really sick. I don't want to go there. But isn't that exactly what Jesus has been doing and what Daniel's been talking about these last couple of weeks? Like, 
like the places where people don't want to go. You don't want to go to Galilee. There's a bunch of people there that are outcast from the rest of our society. There are a bunch of people there who, who, don't, who don't follow the law the same way. There are, a bunch, there are a bunch of Gentiles there. We don't want to go be with them. We don't want to catch Gentile. Why would we go there? And yet, and yet that's where Jesus went. That's where Jesus started his ministry. That's where he's going to attain this reputation down the road of, he's that guy that came from Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. And yet, and yet Jesus, Jesus is seeking out those people, the outcasts, the people that you would try to keep your distance from because you don't want to get their germs on you. We're going to kind of follow up on that idea today. So Matthew chapter 4, um, we're going to pick up in verse 23, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we're actually going to go forward a little bit even today. Um, so chapter 4, verse 23, and he, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and, pro and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Matthew kind of gives us this summary of what the beginning of Jesus' ministry looks like. Uh, and he's going to give us a similar summary to, and then Jesus went and did these things in chapter 9. And they're going to very closely mirror each other. And now, for the theology nerds in the room, you get, you get your theology nerd moment. Uh, in the Bible, when you see very similar types of phrasing in two different places, they are intentionally put there by the author to highlight what happens in between. So when we get this, and Jesus ministered and healed a lot of people. And in chapter 9, we're going to get, and Jesus ministered and healed a lot of people. What Matthew's saying is, everything that happens between that is really important, because I didn't just summarize that. Like, you get a summary, so what I'm not summarizing must be vital. Which is going to be this long sermon that Jesus is about to sit down and preach. If you really want to nerd out, that's called an inclusio. There's your... There's your Third word for the week. It's an inclusio, because we're including all this stuff in the middle. Like, this is the stuff. And we actually are going to get this really clear picture of Matthew trying to push forward the message that Jesus is about to be preaching. And so he emphasizes during this summary, there are three things that Jesus is doing during this time. He is teaching, he's proclaiming the gospel. In the NIV, that's, the word, that's another word for preaching. So he's separating the idea of teaching and preaching, and he's healing. And here's the first thing I want us to pick up on. The message that Jesus is delivering has a dual purpose. Because he separates the idea of teaching and preaching. So let's look at the difference between teaching and preaching. There's a dual purpose here. It's to train believers in righteousness, and it's to reveal the truth of God to unbelievers. So you've kind of got these two different ideas. You've got, you've got building up on a knowledge base and a faith base that's already present in people who are already following Christ. And at the same time, his message is still good for unbelievers because he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he's going to sit down and he's going to say, let's look at what the kingdom of heaven looks like. But the overarching theme is still, you need me, 
you need to let go of your sin and you need to follow me. So there's kind of a dual purpose in what he's saying. Yes, the focus, the primary focus of what he's going to be teaching here in a few minutes is going to be for those who are following him. And he's going to be trying to build them up and give them a better knowledge base of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. But he's, he's, he's not ignoring the fact that there are unbelievers in the room. And I think that should mirror, hopefully, how we approach Sunday mornings or, or Sunday nights or, or maybe even in your community groups. You should approach it with this mindset. We are trying to build up the church. My primary focus while I am preaching is that I am trying to deliver some sort of truth to the church that's going to affect our lives and cause us to look more and more like Jesus. That's my primary focus. But I'm not ignorant of the fact that there are probably people in here who are not believers. And to those people, the message is still very clear and very broad. All of these things are true, but you just need to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, and then we'll start building on that base. But the base still is, you need to follow Jesus. You need to surrender to him. You need to let go of the control that you're holding on in your own life and say, I'm going to follow you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what he's modeling. He's saying, I've got two purposes, because I have two different audiences, which we're going to see in just a second. And, and we as the church need to be aware of that. So when you're in your community groups, and when you're talking about you know, fun little theological things, like, like our CG tends to get off on all sorts of tangents. Like we end up, like prayer requests in our community groups sometimes take an hour and a half. Because we'll start praying and somebody will say, yeah, that prayer request reminds me of that one thing. And then we'll end up, it's over. We'll be back in an hour. You know, and we end up on these little super detailed little, hey, what about this verse in the Bible kinds of things. Or, or we'll be talking about the sermon. We'll be like, well, you use this one word. And that one word will stem another 45 minutes of conversation, something that's not even closely related to where we were. It's still Bible talk. And it's fun to talk about. And it's, and it's interesting to dig deeper into but we need to be conscious of the fact that not everybody in our community group might be ready for the finer details of theology because they still don't even know Jesus. Or they still don't even fully understand what surrender means. And so we need to be intentionally aware of who is in the group when we're talking. I'm up here talking about Jesus preaching a sermon. And i got to be aware that for some of you, you know exactly what that means. You know exactly who Jesus is, but that's not necessarily true. And we have to train ourselves to be concerned for both types of audiences that may be put in front of us by God. And both messages are the same. Like, like they work hand in hand. Because he's going to deliver one message. He's going to say one set of things. But he's delivering that with the mindset of, I have two different people hearing two completely different types of things. So we just need to make sure that we hold on to that idea. We don't lose track of the fact that it's not just it's not just for us to kind of theology nerd out on. Like, that's fun, but that's not our only goal. And that's not the only, the only people in the room. Everybody's not going to be in on that, and we have to be aware of that. So it separates the idea of his preaching and his teaching. The third thing that it says he's doing is his healing. And he gives us this really long, specific list of all these different types of things that he's doing. Uh, people who are sick, people who are just hurting, uh, people who are possessed by demons. That's a pretty... That's a pretty specific thing. Epileptics, paralytics. And it says he healed all of these things. This is the first time that we're really getting a clear demonstration of Jesus being Lord over creation, over created things, over, over things that are oppressing the world, things that are the result of sin, right? 
So we're seeing him start to demonstrate his authority over the corruption that is in the world as a result of the fall. So we're starting to get, and, and, and we'll see this more and more. The more that we see Jesus healing, we see that that is just a clear picture of Jesus healing us from our brokenness and our sin. Yes, there are illnesses. Yes, there are, there are hurting people. Yes, there are people that are, have, that are being oppressed by demons. There are people that can't walk. There are people that can't see. And yes, in all of these instances, he's demonstrating his ability over the physical world as God to heal these things, to fix these problems. But all of that is just a metaphor for his solving the problem of sin. His fixing the, the foundational brokenness in creation. The thing that we messed up, the thing that is broken because of our sin, is what he is showing his ability, his power, his authority to correct. His authority to, to bring back together and put back in order. And as a result of doing all these things, because these things, like, like if you heard there's a guy who's making people who don't walk able to walk. There's a guy who's making people who can't hear and can't see. He's fixing them. He's, he's making them whole. That's going to get your attention. Nowadays, we'd probably get super skeptical. But, but these things were actually happening. These things were happening on a big scale. Lots of people were, like everybody who's coming to him is being healed. And what's the result of that? Word is starting to get out. It's even outside of Israel, into the Gentile world, that people are starting to hear about this guy who is performing all of these miraculous things. And Jesus is starting to build up this following. This, this large group of people are starting to come to him looking for healing, looking to just see something amazing. You know, we do that too. It's like you hear that something amazing is happening. I just want to catch a glimpse of this thing. I just want to see it in action for my own eyes so that I can know that this is real. Is this guy really doing all of these amazing and astounding things? And so this large group of people is starting to come. And what we're going to see here in just a second as we pick up in chapter 5 is that Jesus is going to see all of these people. We're going to realize that he has concern for all these people and that he wants good for all these people. So he wants to teach these people. He wants to proclaim the gospel to all of these people. So let's go ahead and jump into chapter 5. I'm going to get very far into chapter 5. We're going to start with, chapter, with uh, verse 1 and 2 for now. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... We'll see what he says in a minute. So he sees the large crowd, and he says, this is an opportunity. We're going to take advantage of this. We're not going to squander this. Sometimes God is going to bring people to you with the intent that you proclaim the gospel to them. And like Jesus, we need to be like, we need to see the opportunity and take advantage of it. Like, there's an opportunity to say, let's all look at Christ. Let's all look to him and see him as our only hope of salvation. Don't ignore the fact that God has brought you that audience. We who are up here preaching cannot ignore the fact that God is putting us here and for some reason people want to hear what we have to say. We need to not ignore that. Don't take that lightly. So it says Jesus went up on the mountain to teach. I think, and it's not like, it's not like specifically stated, but as we're starting to see more and more these parallels of how Jesus' life is kind of mirroring 
uh, Israel's life. Isn't it interesting that after they came back out of Egypt, that they stopped for a time at a mountain where God came down and instructed them, gave them the law, gave them more specific understanding of what his standards are and what it is that he wants from them, the type of life that he wants his people to live. And that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. He's going to sit down on a mountain and he's going to explain what the standards are for being in the kingdom of God, for life as a believer. He's going to, he's going to sit down and give them very specific instruction on God's standards. And I thought that was kind of fascinating to see how this continues to mirror, continues to parallel exactly the path that, Jesus, that uh, Israel took in the Old Testament. And we're seeing Matthew's answering the Old Testament, saying, see, all of the Old Testament, every single detail, even the fact that they stopped at a mountain, is pointing towards Jesus. It's pointing towards Christ coming and ultimately fulfilling everything that the Old Testament was pointing towards. So, again, Matthew begins to distinguish between, he, he mentions two groups of people here. There are kind of going to be three main groups of people that we're going to start to follow throughout the rest of Matthew. The first, the crowds. It says, he said, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain where he sat down. Um, the crowds are going to be this group of people who are kind of neutral, easily swayed back and forth. Like right now, they're really cool with Jesus. They're really cool with following He's doing some amazing things. Later on, those same crowds are going to be swayed and are going to be the same people who are yelling, crucify him. These are not people who are committed followers to Jesus. These are people who are there. These are people who are just kind of on the bandwagon, seeing what all's happening, maybe kind of taking it in, exploring a little bit, trying to understand a little bit about what Jesus is saying. These are the people that, that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel for. These are the people who who are in your CG or who are in our church or, or who you may run into um, when you're at work or in school or wherever you are. These are the people that, that don't really know Christ that you need to be aware they're there so that you can say, you need to follow Jesus. Because these people still don't fully understand what it's like to know and love Christ. The second group are the disciples. Uh, it says, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he's separating out these two groups. He's saying that you have the crowds, which are this neutral group, these people that are still, I mean, if you want to say kind of exploring, I mean, we could. But these are the people that are, that are yet to be determined whether they're in or out completely. But, but out of that group come the disciples. They're the ones that come up to them really ready and hungry for more specific teaching. These are those who are, who've been called out, separated out as followers of Christ. These are people who are in. Now, these aren't don't, don't get in mind that when it says the disciples, it's talking about the 12 apostles. We, we haven't gotten to that part yet. That's coming. Because um, at this point, Jesus, as we've only seen, has only called four of his disciples, his apostles. And he's going to separate out and kind of make them kind of a subgroup of the disciples later on. So when you see the word disciples here, this is the church. This is us. This is the people who have been called out from among the crowds to follow Christ. And these are the people that Jesus is focused on. These are the people that Jesus is getting ready to really specifically explain the will of God to. Because they're the people who are able to fully comprehend and understand what it is that he's saying. They're the ones who have the ears to hear the words that he's going to give to them. And the third group, we've seen them uh, back in chapter 3. Uh, they're the religious leaders. 
And they're the antagonists. They're the ones who are out against Christ. They're the ones who have already been called you brood of vipers, right? These are the ones that, that are going to attempt to sway the crowds, these, the neutral party, later on. So we've got these three groups. And here, we're really distinguishing between the two groups that are coming to here and really setting apart the, the specific need for different types of teaching, proclaiming the gospel and then actually building up a more specific level of understanding in the church. And the primary focus on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is about to deliver is going to be for his disciples. Just like the primary focus for preaching in the church is actually for the church. We are aware that there are people who are not going to be saved. And to those people, we still continue to say, trust Jesus, know Jesus. But our primary focus in this setting is that we're trying to take the church and explain better what God's will for our church specifically is and what it is that we're supposed to be doing as believers and how we are supposed to be living as individuals. So we're going to spend the next several weeks, and by weeks I probably mean months, studying this specific sermon and kind of what the primary purpose is. So is it simply going to be a list of rules? Is it is it going to be the standard that, that is required for us to get into heaven? Is that the kind of thing that he's going to be talking about? And in a sense, it is. It is a list of rules, and it is a standard that is required for us to get in. But ultimately, the point that I hope we find out is that it is an unattainable standard. It is a standard that we cannot meet on our own. And it is a standard that only through the sacrifice of Christ and his grace being imparted on us can we get into the kingdom of heaven? So when you see these things, you're going to say, that seems impossible. There's no way that I can never hate again. Or I can never do this thing again. Or, or he's going to give these very specific, you can't even look at a person with lust in your eyes. That gets you out. And you're going to be like, how am I supposed to do that? And that's the point. It's the standard, but it's not a standard that we can reach. It is not a standard that we can attain apart from grace apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the work of Christ. And I want us to understand that idea as we enter into the next couple of chapters because I want us to see this as too high a calling for an individual because I hope that by the time we get to the end of this, we say, man, there is no way I can do this. Thank you, Christ, for what you've done. And I hope we are, we are humbled by the fact that God would want to be with us and interact with us and he loves us and welcomes us into his family because we cannot meet up to his standards. So he's going to open up his sermon with kind of a summary of where the rest of the sermon will go. Uh, we're not going to read all of this list because I want to save some for next week because I have something else that I think we can get out of them. So let's go ahead and read ver just verses 3 and 4 here real quick. So, he's gonna, so it says in verse 2, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We'll stop right there. So he's going to be using this word blessed for a little bit. And, and, if, and I, for some reason this really stuck with me when I was in probably... 7th grade, 8th grade, uh, in my, I can't remember if we called them community groups yet at Heritage. It might have still been Sunday school back then. Who knows? It was, it was the, the youth group gathering that took place after the sermon took place. And I remember that uh, 
the teacher at the time, made a big deal of saying, blessed, same word as happy. You might as well just say happy the whole way. Happy are the people, happy are the people, happy are the people. So when you say God bless you, you're saying God make you happy. And it's like, I always remembered that. And, and that was in my mind as I was studying for this morning. But the thing that I realized as I was, as I was reading some commentaries and stuff is it is about happiness. But it's not just like an emotion. It's not just that you're happy when it's not just that you're happy when you're poor in spirit or happy when you mourn, because those things don't seem to balance. Those things don't seem to go together. It's a, it's a deeper meaning than that. It's a, it's a profound like feeling of joy in who God is, happiness of knowing the creator of everything, being, being in his presence. It's a, it's a, even though things are bad, even though things are broken, I still feel this sense of joy in my life, this, this, this happiness that I find in Christ amidst whatever I may be going through. Because what we're going to see from this list is he's kind of setting apart this, when bad things are happening, that's when you're truly happy. That's when you're truly satisfied. So it's a happiness that, that kind of proceeds from a deep-rooted joy in who God is. So when it's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, those are the people who are who look at the list that follows after this and say, that is a standard far too high. I am, I am not that. I am broken. I am, I am wicked. I am helpless. Right? People who see themselves, and I loved this word. I found this in one of my commentaries. Who are spiritually bankrupt. Who are like, I got nothing for him. I cannot offer anything. I am completely empty. The people who know they have nothing to offer God... Those are the people who get the kingdom of heaven. He's saying the way into the kingdom of heaven is not thinking you deserve it. The way into the kingdom of heaven is not thinking I can do what it takes to earn God's favor. The way into the kingdom of heaven is to know that there is nothing that you can do to earn a seat. There is nothing that you can offer. It's like I am empty before you, God. There is nothing that I have that you want. Those are the ones who will get to experience the kingdom of God. Those people who are so humbled by who they are, right? Which is, which is kind of what's answered in the next verse. Blessed are those who mourn. Those are the people who, who see their sinful state, who see who they are, who, see, who, who know the thoughts that go through their head or the, the motivations that go through their heart. And they say, this is disgusting to God. I am I am ashamed that he sees me this way, that he knows this about me. Those are the people who are going to be comforted. Those are the people who are going to say, he's going to say to them, you get it. You understand. You're, you're sick. You're broken. And those are the people who are going to be comforted because, because they're the ones who God's going to say, you understand that it's because I love you that I'm doing this for you. Not because you love me enough. But I love you and I'm coming after you and I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you whole. Those are the people who get comfort. The ones who, who pretend like they don't feel the brokenness that they have inside of them. Those are the ones who ultimately don't get comforted. Because in the end, they were relying only on their own ability to get by. 
And that's never going to be the solution. This idea of mourning over our sin is something that I think in our culture we often lose sight of. But if you think, think back to the Psalms. There are a bunch of these Psalms of lament. Just Psalms of people just like crying out, God, I'm sorry I'm who I am. And we lose sight of that, that part. It's, it's, maybe that's probably not the song we would lead with on a Sunday morning. Like, good morning, let's worship together. We're awful. Right? That's probably not the... Like, that's, there would be some irony in writing a peppy fast song about lamenting over our sin. And maybe we can get there someday. But, but I think that there is a healthy practice to be made of looking at our sinful estate... And, and mourning over the tragedy of what our sin has done to us. Because, because when we see that and we recognize what we look like to God, it causes us to be so overwhelmed by what he's done for us and the love that he shows to us in welcoming us into his family. And I think it puts us in the kind of mindset that verse what was it, verse 3 was talking about, where it says, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It, that's the, it's this idea that we recognize our brokenness, recognize our sinfulness, recognize our, our wickedness, and that is what, that's what ultimately drives us, brings us into the kingdom of heaven. And that's why I asked the questions at the beginning. When have you felt the least adequate? When have you felt the most helpless? When have you felt the most broken. Because just like at the end of chapter 4, Jesus came for the broken and the weak and the sick and those who are being um, overwhelmed by demonic forces and those who, who can't see and those who can't hear and those who can't walk. He didn't come and, and, and seek out those people who were in good shape. Like He wasn't like, hey, you come follow me, you can walk already. He went and found somebody who couldn't walk and said, hey, you walk, and now walk with me. He sought out the sick people, the broken people, the people who saw the effects of sin in their life in a real way, which is why I think it's so important that Matthew left us that summary of these are the types of people that he was ministering to. He was, he was healing the broken, he was healing the sick, and if we can't find ourselves in that group, we are not the type of people who are going to be entering into the kingdom of heaven. Do we see ourselves as broken and sick? Do we see ourselves as weak? Because it's when we are weak that we see his strength. It's when we are broken that we see he is the one who puts us back together. So as we look ahead, like let's not become discouraged because of the standards, right? Like, we've been reading Leviticus on Sunday nights, which is all sorts of fun. But you see, and we're about to get into more of the moral standards and stuff, and it's like, this is so specific. There's no way that we could do that. And that's the point. That was always the point why Moses wrote those words down for Israel, was so that they could see we are not able to save ourselves by our own righteousness. And so as we look ahead, we're going to see all sorts of specifics. We're going to see standards, even from the Old Testament, made more stringent, made even harder to follow. 
let's not become discouraged by the unattainable standard that God is going to set before us. But let's instead see that standard and get a view of who we are. Understand the brokenness that's inside of us and understand the hopelessness that is present in our lives apart from the grace of God. Let's pray.